You may be seated again. So most of you Texans don't really leave Texas because once you find the promised land is what you all say, why ever leave? Some of you Texans go off and then you come back and then you have us. (laughs) See, I haven't lived in my hometown of Auburn, Alabama in 20 plus years. I've only been alive 35. So most of my life I've been away from where I grew up, but so anytime we're close, Carlin gets taken on a tour de Auburn because I want to show her and I want to see everything I remembered growing up. And see, I can drive and I know my way around, even though I left there when I was 10 years old, I know how to get everywhere. And, and I can drive and I know all the streets, but just because I know the directions doesn't mean I know what's going to be there. And so we drive, and yeah, the house still looks the same, though the tree is way bigger, and my dad is so proud of it growing. But then you drive down the road, and you're like, wait, that's new. That wasn't there before, forgetting that it was been 20 years since I'd been there. But you're like, when did that pop up? You know, they didn't ask my opinion on if we should put a movie theater here or open that there. And it's all fresh and new. Even though I know what's going on, and I know the roads haven't changed, What's on them is different. There's new and fresh things to see. Today, we're going to study a passage that you know. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn there. If you don't, they're going to be on the screen. If you want to follow along on your phone, that's great. I use the ESV, the English Standard Version. So if you want to just follow along in that translation, that can be helpful. See, we're in a passage that you know. If I said, go teach our kids, David and Goliath, the thing you would be scared about is the word kids, not teach them David and Goliath, right? You could do the David and Goliath story. It's that kidding Cooper to sit down part that's a little more challenging. And so we are, uh, we're going down a, a path that you know. Non-Christians even use the phrases David versus Goliath to talk about underdogs and favorites. But I hope that in the next 28 minutes or so, that God speaks in new and fresh ways, that he opens your mind, that he shows you new things that you did not know existed. And more than just learning, I hope that it is transformative, that on this journey you go, wait a second, I know why we have so much detail of this battle. No other battle do we have this much detail than this one battle. And so maybe we can learn and God can change our hearts and minds as we jump in. So 1 Samuel Chapter 17, I'm going to start in verse 3 because y'all don't want to hear me read 55 straight verses. We're just going to follow it along like skipping rocks today. So verse 3, it says this, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and there is a valley in between them. The armies are about a mile apart from each other, so the no man's land is about a half mile down into the valley. And then it says, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Okay, so let's pause for a second. You've got the army of the Philistines versus the army of the Israelites standing on opposite mountains, and these armies have been fighting for years, for decades, for generations, all the way back, Samson. After his hair was cut off, he gets that one bit of strength at the end of his life, and he kills many, many, many 
Philistines. They have been a warring nations. And let me tell you, the Philistines are the more powerful nation. They are in the Iron Age. They have iron forges and they have iron weapons and iron tools. They will not share their technology with the Israelites, and so the Israelites are stuck in the Bronze Age. So they have inferior weaponry. They have inferior tools. They are outnumbered, outmanned. They are outclassed. They, uh, the, the Philistine army is bigger, better, stronger, more equipped. They are scary enough. It's already not a fair fight, and then Goliath walks out. Six cubits in a span, or for those of us that don't talk in cubits, it's over nine feet tall. He's a giant. He's imposing. He is scary. And he's ready for battle. Verses 5 through 7, we're not going to read it, but verses 5 through 7 detail the armor that he has and the weapons that he has. He is wearing 200 pounds worth of armor on his body. This chain mail that's covering him from head to toe. He has a spear whose end of the spear is 20 pounds. He has all the right weapons, and he has a shield bearer that would go before him so that he could deflect and fight against any projectiles and arrows that would be coming at Goliath. So he is equipped for battle. And guess what? He's ready to fight. Verse 8, let's read 8 through 10 together. It says this, He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him, and I kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. See, Goliath is standing there, and he is proposing a representative battle. Rather than both armies fighting and a lot of wasted bloodshed, what Goliath says, send your best, I'm our best, and we'll just go at it. Whoever wins, that army wins. Let's save a lot of innocent blood, and let's just have a mano-a-mano, one-on-one fight to the death. That's what he's saying. And, I mean, if you're Goliath, why not? He's Andre the Giant, right? From back in your 80s days. If you're a newer person, so the big show for those WWE fans, all right? He is in, he's in the battlefield, standing there, and he's going, bring it on. I'm probably not the best picture for that, but he's in the battlefield, all right? The other Jordan would be better to do that than me. He's in the battlefield going, come on, I'll take anybody, and why wouldn't he be? I mean, he's huge. He can take it all down. So what does Israel do? Verse 11, this is their response. It says this, sorry, I flipped too early. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. How does Israel respond to this opportunity? Fear. Saul, the king, is afraid. Every soldier, every commander is afraid. Verse 16 is eye-opening. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward, he took his stand, he invited the army, and he did it morning and evening. For 40 days, he stood there twice a day, taunting Israel. And this stalemate has been going on for a month, over a month. 
in a sense, God has given the army of Israel 40 days to change their heart. 40 days to build their courage. 40 days to remember that He's on their side. And yet, Israel is characterized with 40 days of fear, dismay, fleeing, believing the giant is too strong. Let's enter David now, the youngest of eight, the shepherd boy, now messenger boy for his father. His three older brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, are all at war with the king, Saul. And David is sent, for, uh, sent back and forth to take goods to his brothers. Verse 17 shows that. Verse 17, it says, And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain, and take these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand, and see if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. When I read this, I believe that David is entering this sphere of fear. Jesse, his father, I think is terrified. He, he's scared that his boys are out at war like any parent would be. He, he says, well, let's send them some groceries just so I can check in, right? I just want to hear how they're doing. Are, are they making it? Are they okay? Are they still alive? David, go and just check up on them. Here, take some groceries. And then, and then I think there could even be a bribe to the commander, right? Let's give him those ten cheeses. So maybe he will protect my sons. Maybe he will put them not on the front lines. Maybe he will give them a better job, a little safer position. David shows up. He is being sent by a dad who is scared. He shows up to soldiers who are scared. He shows up to a king who is scared. And verse 23 is where it all changes. Verse 23, it says this. As he, David, talked with them, he's just shown up and he's talking. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out up of the ranks of the Philistines and he spoke the same words as before. And then it all changes here at the end. And David heard him. See, Goliath's been doing this for 40 days, and nothing has changed. 40 days of them running and fleeing, 40 days of fear, and then those final words changes it all, and David heard him. Verse 24, it says this, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him, and they were much afraid. I, I read it this way, this recounting, that David is here talking. They look up and they see Goliath is now approaching them, and everybody runs away, and David's just watching. What is this guy doing? Why is this Philistine on our side, potentially? And he hears the taunts and the defiling of his God. And David, I'm sure, at the end of this, is kind of looking around. He goes, where did you all go? The way I read it is David's the only one standing there because everybody else is afraid and ran back to their safety place. One writer noted it this way, and we'll use this again and again. All others see the size of the giant. David sees the size of his God. See, everybody's looking at the size of the giant, and they're terrified. David's looking at the size of his God. 
All others judge on the outside, just like Samuel when he saw Eliab last week. Well, surely this is the one that the Lord will anoint. And God says, no, 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 no. You're looking at physical characteristics. I look at spiritual ones. David, the one that has the heart after God, he's going, wait a second. I don't need to fear. Verse 25, it's like they come back together here, and it says, and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man? who has come up, surely he has come up to defy Israel. Most commentators believe that uh, every day Goliath is getting a little more bold and a little more courageous, and at once he stayed on his side and he said, Israel, who wants to fight? And then he worked his way into no man's land and he said, who wants to fight? And now he's working his way into their territory and saying, who wants to fight? And all the people are going, oh gosh, he is, we can't do anything. And They tell of the reward that happens for anybody that can defeat him. It says the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give give him his daughter and he will make his father's house free in Israel. There's these great rewards. You will get a treasure. You will get uh, the king's daughter and you'll get tax-free estate. I know I'm getting old when the final one is the one that's most appealing to me. That's a really good deal, guys. Tax-free. Verse 26, we see David's response. And David said to the men who stood by him, the fearful men, the scared men, the ones that had scurried off when Goliath showed up, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And catch this. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who's this man? Defying our God. See, David knows the size of the giant, but he also knows the size of his God. David's, in a sense, asking, how can God's army, led by God's king, let this enemy humiliate them like this? While everyone else is characterized by fear, David will be characterized by faith. Why are y'all scared? Do you not remember who we serve? Do you not remember what he has done? Do you not remember the trumpets of Jericho? Do you not remember the parting of the Red Sea? Do you not remember that we have won battle after battle after battle? Do you not remember what Samson did to Philistines like this? David is fully believing, and then here comes the obstacles. Verse 28, David's ready to fight. Who's going to take this man down? And then his brother shows up. Eliab, his eldest brother, shows up and he spoke to the men and and he heard David speaking to the men and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And what does he say? Why have you come down? Why are you here, little brother? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. And David says in verse 29, what have I done now? That's a little brother answer, is it not? Was it not but a word? See, David has faith, and little brother tries to talk him into fear. Eliab tries to talk him out of his faith. Eliab tries to be practical and sensible and logical and prudent and responsible. He's trying to argue him out of faith. He insults David. Little brother, what are you doing here? This isn't your fight. Where's your little flock? 
Don't you have some menial task you should be doing right now? It's interesting, David doesn't get into an argument or a battle here. He doesn't fight his brother. He knows who the real enemy is. It'd be easy to fight the brother. If you have siblings, you know. But he only responds with, all I did was say the truth. Here's a great point for us to realize. When we live lives of trusting God, even when it means to do the irrational or the impossible or the non-logical, many people will offer judgments, opinions, advice, and dissensions to what we are doing. Even those that are close to us, even those who love us deeply. But we must be wise about who we listen to and wise when we listen to them. Because not all advice is good advice and not all advice is God's advice. When the words, verse 31, that David spoke were heard, they were repeated, uh, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for David and he brings David in and David comes to Saul in verse 32 and he says, let no man's heart fail because of him, that giant. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine." Saul gets word, brings him in. David continues to show confidence. We don't need to fear him. We have God. And just like his brother, another obstacle of faith shows up for David. Verse 33, Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. You're just a boy, David, a small boy. I'm much larger than you, Saul could say, and he's much larger than me. You don't stand a chance. And that last line makes me think about lines that are thrown around in churches all the time. Goliath's been fighting longer than you've been alive. I've been teaching Sunday school longer than you've been alive. I've been sitting in this pew longer than you've been alive. David says, okay, yeah, he's been doing it a while, but I'm not concerned. David, again, does not allow fear to creep in. He doesn't follow the advice of his oldest brother, nor the king, because they defy following in his faith with God. David looks at Saul, verse 34. He looks back at his history with God, and he says this, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and it took a lamb from the flock... I went after him, and I struck him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, if he started trying to attack me, I caught him by his beard, struck him, and killed him. Verse 36, pivotal verses here. Your servant has struck down both lion and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. See, David looks back to his experience with God. It gives him confidence for his present situation. I've watched God work before when he killed lions and when he killed bears. I can take this guy. Verse 37 is the key verse. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul stops arguing. Go and the Lord be with you. Remember, David is filled with the Spirit since his anointing, and so he is thinking, he is acting, and he is following God here. See, here is the pivotal point. 
Everybody that looks at this battle calls it David versus Goliath. David sees it differently. He sees it as Goliath versus God. And when it's a battle of Goliath versus God, he knows who to bet on. If you look in your program today, I left a blank there, and I bet somebody wanting to just go ahead and fill it in probably wrote David versus Goliath in there. But the real battle today is God versus Goliath. And I like those odds. Verse 38 and 39, Saul says, hey, put on my armor. David says, I can't fight like this. Random lesson to learn here. We need to fight battles with how we've been trained and how we've been equipped. Marriage has taught me a lot about that. I've given a lot of great and godly advice, I think, to Carlin. Hey, go handle that situation this way. Yeah, that's not the best way for her to handle it, right? She needs to fight her battles the way that she fights battles. The way that I would go into a school and talk to other teachers or principals is probably not the best way my sweet wife should. We need to fight battles with how we've been trained and how we've been equipped. And David says, no, just give me my staff. I'll grab some stones and I'm going in. So the battle is set. Let's get through it. On one side you have Goliath, fully armored, iron sword, shield bearer. On the other side, you got David, no armor, staff, wooden stick, slingshotting some stones, no help. Goliath starts taunting him, verse 43, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, and the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Are you joking right now, Israel? This is what you're sending at me? This is too easy. Verse 45 and beyond, and this is our last set of verses for the day. I want you to see that David enters the battle with faith and wisdom. Victory is not an accident for David. David knows that his God can, and he uses wisdom to bring it about. To be honest, David needs to get Goliath in front of his shield bearer. As long as Goliath is hiding behind the shield, his stones will not do anything. No arrow, no slingshot would do anything. So he's got to pull Goliath out to get him exposed. He has to lean into his arrogance here. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of the hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all may know that there is a God in Israel. You see, he's pulling him out. And that all this assembly may know the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give, me, you, he will give you into my hands. Philistine arose and came and drew near. Presumably, he's just running down and chasing this pipsqueak that keeps talking. He ran to meet David, verse 48. And David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag. He took out a stone. He slung it, struck the Philistine on his head, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Goliath entered the battle with arrogance and was exposed by it. Verse 51, very graphic. 
David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his iron sword, drew it out of its sheath, killed him, and cut off his head with it. That's your Bible, guys. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. In a sense, David and Israel are showing up to this battle and they're saying, we're not only going to defeat you, but we're going to use your own weapons against you. David kills Goliath. Israel then goes and slaughters the Philistines as they run away. Now, so what? You knew that part. Jordan, you just spent 23 minutes telling me that what I already know. Let's land this ship on some things that we can take from it. All right, I got five quick points. First, David trusts God. If we're being honest, this was Saul's battle to fight. Remember, he's the biggest and all of Israel, a head taller than everybody. It should have been Saul fighting Goliath. He was the Lord's anointed. He was the one chosen. He should have been leading them in faith. He should have gone into battle and led the people. But Saul is a failure in faith where David is not. David trusts his God because David knows this is not a battle of him versus Goliath, but Goliath versus God. And when you think of the battle that way, the odds are stacked in Israel's favor. But see, only David understood that. David trusts his God. And see, oftentimes I fight battles in my life only in my own strength, in my own power, trying to manufacture victories over what seems impossible. I look at the outward components of the battle and go, what can I and can I not do? What can I and can I not accomplish? David trusted his God for victory. That gave him, number two, the ability to tune out the detractors. There was every excuse in the world for David not to fight this battle. His dad is scared. Every soldier he meets is scared. His king is scared. When he steps up and says, I'm ready to fight, his brother starts questioning him, his king starts questioning him, his opponent starts questioning him. Am I a dog? You're sending this little kid with sticks at me? Are you kidding me right now? David did not allow doubts and fears to immobilize him. Number three, David fought with faith and wisdom. Victory was no accident for David. Underdogs do not win accidentally. They use wise plans and schemes. They don't fight traditionally. David did not go and say, let's take our swords out, Goliath, and let's just go. He would lose. God had taught and trained and equipped David for a moment like this. Now, he still needed the hand of God, the blessing of God, and the favor of God to have victory in this battle. Number four, David trusted in past faithfulness of God to give him present faith. He looked back so he could move forward. The bears and the lions were proof enough that God could do it. The anointing that we studied last week was probably a confidence of, yeah, I don't think Samuel showed up and poured oil on my head so that I would die battling a Philistine in this battle. I think God has something more for me. David remembers the past faithfulness of God to give him present faith. The great modern-day philosopher Nick Saban says this, don't waste a failure. Don't allow a loss just to go on and go, well, we lost. No, 
figure out what caused the loss. And in the last 15 years of coaching the great University of Alabama, he's lost 20 games. During that time span, he's won six national championships. Because you don't waste a failure, you learn from your mistakes so that you can be bettered. I want to twist that. Don't forget a victory. Don't forget a victory, friends. Don't forget what God has done, how He has worked, how He has delivered you. Because it's really easy for us to have a victory over some giant, some impossible situation, something that seemed too much, and then instead of celebrating that and remembering that, we just look to the horizon at the next giant, at the next battle, at the next issue, at the next problem. We have to stop forgetting victories. We need to set up stones of remembrances in our life. We need to have memorials to our God that say, God, you have done it before. We need to set up altars. Not altars that worship other gods, but we need to set up these places where we go, God, I know you can. We need to remember the victories because they give confidence to us in the midst of these new challenges. Do you have a way to remember your victories intentionally? Do you record them? How God has worked? Do you write it down? Do you talk about it? Do you remember it? Because the days get hard and the valleys get low and the night gets dark. But the God who's been with you then is with you now. David looked back so he could move forward. And finally, number five, David combated fear with faith. I want you to think, we did during our prayer time, what do you feel right now is too much to overcome? What are you fearing? What overwhelms you? What's the giant that's pressing on you? My question to you is very simple. Do you believe that you can have victory over it? over that addiction, over that sin, over that diagnosis, over that struggle, over that situation, over that relationship? Do you believe that God can bring victory in that problem? A great friend of mine was struggling with crippling anxiety about five, six years, or probably about four years ago. So much so that he would have panic attacks five to eight times a week that were completely paralyzing to his body. For 30 to 45 minutes, he would lay curled up in the fetal position, toes curled, fingers all constricted, unable to move, unable to do anything, just trying to breathe just about every single day. He would do his best to get Siri to make a phone call so somebody could sit with him and talk with him during those situations and experiences. And I remember asking him, deep in the throes of it. Do you believe that you can be healed of this? Do you believe that anxiety can be controlled in your life? That you can be rid of it? See, oftentimes we look at the problem and we think they're impossible. We look at the size of the giant, not the size of our God, friends. So unnerved by the size of the giant that we forget the size of our God. 
I loved how people would come up to Jesus. There was a leper in Matthew chapter 8. He came up to Jesus and he said, If you will, you can make me clean. And I've said this before, but I'm saying it again. We don't pray, if you will, God, you can. We pray, God, if you can, will you please? We need to understand the size of our God and not be overwhelmed by the size of our giants. I'll leave you with these three really, really, really quick things. First thing, here are some steps you need to take. Maybe you need to name giants today. You might need to be sitting there naming your giant or giants. What is overwhelming you? What is standing there mocking you, taunting you, and saying, I have victory over you and you can't do anything about it? You need to name your giants. Some of you need to start building some altars. I think your cover of your Bible right here would be a great place to start writing down all those ways that God has worked in your life. All those times that you look back and you go, God, I had nowhere to go and you pulled through. You saved the day. You brought peace. You brought answers to impossible questions. Some of you need to start building those altars in your home, in your Bible, in your mind. You need to be setting up those stones of remembrances. Finally, some of you need to just start praying that prayer. God, you can, will you? Because remember, it's not a battle of David and Goliath. David loses the battle against Goliath every time. It's a battle of Goliath versus God. And God wins that battle every time. Why push God away when he's saying, I want to be there? I want to walk walk with you. I want to fight this battle alongside you. Let's pray together.